0: Welcome to the Everything EC podcast. I am your host Carla Ward and today on the podcast I have a very special person who I consider a dear friend even though we've never met in person joining me. Her name is Monica Madison. She is the Director of Specialized Education and Inclusion. She is a professional speaker and a former college instructor. She's bridging the gap between support professionals and the classroom, educating the educators to best understand, honor, and support Neurodiversity. She is inclusion focused, and through her professional development workshops, she provides ECEs the actionable strategies they need to better care for all children, neurodiverse and neurotypical. Welcome to the show, Monica. I am so excited that you and I are finally getting a chance to chat in person. You and I have been Instagram friends for a very long time, sliding into each other's DMs, connecting about education, and we definitely have chatted a lot about today's topic, but let's kick it off by you telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah. So yeah, like you said, we're Instagram friends and I'm so grateful for it. I feel like we're building a really nice community. About me, it's hard to really narrow it down, but I am, I think my Instagram bio says I'm, you know, An education consultant is what I'm using as a terminology, but basically I support neurodiverse children in whatever way that looks, whether I'm supporting them directly through my private practice, or I am educating their educators on how to be more inclusive uh, care providers. So yeah, I'm supporting also their parents through parent coaching. Basically, I am trying to spread the word that is inclusion and neurodiversity in all spaces that children exist.
0: Amazing. And I mean, I've been watching you develop your business over the years and it just has been absolutely incredible how much of an advocate you are for our students. And definitely I want to get everybody on board with inclusion, but let's talk about definitions.
1: What Mm -hmm. is neurodiversity? Yeah. So that's, I feel like in the past, I don't need even two years, this term has been floating around more, especially on social media. And I think people hear it and they start implementing it without really understanding the background or the weight of what they're saying. A lot of times I hear people misusing it as another word for autism. They're saying, instead of saying a child is autistic, they're saying that the child is neurodiverse. And while that's not incorrect, it's limited. That's not the entire scope of this term neurodiversity is really the variation of expected brains that we can have. So we have children that are what we would call neurotypical, and that's kind of the brains that we've structured our our society around, our education around, what we used to expect. We would say this is a neurotypical brain. So these are the brains that do really well with desk work, the you know, kind of audio presentation of information. They're strong with written output. They learn to read kind of just seems passively. They are neurotypical brains. They don't respond in unexpected ways to additional sensory stimulation or um, emotional dysregulation. They are quote unquote typical, but there is this huge variation in all humans of course but also in our brains and part of this variation is neurodiversity and neurodiversity just means that there is a different brain type and the way that these brains process and understand and respond to information is different than a neurotypical brain and that doesn't really mean that one brain is right and one is wrong and that doesn't mean that one brain is you know, you know how a brain should be and one's an adaptation of that brain, they're all variations. I like to say that neurodiversity exists the same way that biodiversity exists. We have different changes and variations in plant life. We have different changes and variation in our brains. And it doesn't mean that between a pine tree and a palm tree, that one of those is a better tree. One is going to thrive down in my Vancouver environment here much better than the other one, but it's not because it's a better treat. It's because the environment has been tailored to it. So we think about neurotypical brains. These are brains that we've tailored our environment for. And so they're able to thrive without a lot of effort or work. Neurodiverse brains, they aren't in an environment that's tailored for them. So they tend to have struggle. So when we're talking about neurodiversity and being inclusive, what we're really looking at is changing our environment so that neurodiverse brains can thrive the same as neurotypical brains already thrive.
0: Oh, you just started talking about one of my favorite topics, and that is environment. <laughs> I absolutely love talking about environments. And as you're talking about neurodiverse versus neurotypical, I'm thinking, well, how can you have a typical classroom mm-hmm. when every child is so unique? Mm-hmm. And then we do have neurodiverse children. Yeah. How can we put, put things into place yeah. or an environment that can suit everybody? And that is really what an inclusive environment is, is one that includes everybody.
1: Yeah. So I like to say for inclusion, we can be inclusive, right? That's like, you know, our end kind of goal. Or we can be proximal. Or we can have, you know, the segregation. So if I think back to my childhood, and I won't say the year, mm-hmm. <laughs> but if I think back, there was separate classrooms, right? We had kind of the general education classroom, and then we had a special education classroom. Mm-hmm. And those children really maybe only mixed on the playground at lunch. We didn't really, there wasn't a lot of even proximity, right? We were segregated in these classrooms. From there, we... Started moving into this combined classroom where we had children that had, you know, IEPs and diagnoses, along with children that were following the um, expected and typical classroom curriculum without diagnoses. And a lot of educators kind of stopped there. They said, look, we're inclusive. We're all together. You know, we've got children that have IEPs and children that don't, and we're all sitting at the same, you know, kind of four piece desk together but that's not inclusion. Actual inclusion is when everybody not only contributes to the learning environment, but benefits from the learning environment. And again, cause I'm a fan of real world examples. My favorite example of this is like a potluck dinner. If we're all attending a potluck dinner and I'm bringing something and you're bringing something and you know, Kayla from um, ECE honestly is bringing something. If I don't show up, The two of you, your dinner's changed. Mm -hmm. You don't benefit the same way because I'm not there. I'm there to contribute something. And my contribution makes that environment better for the two of you. And your contribution makes that environment better for me. And so inclusion feels difficult and it feels overwhelming when we're stuck looking at the proximity, when we're looking at, I have a class of 20 kids and how am I supposed to tailor something to everyone? Like you're saying, everyone's so unique. Real inclusion actually makes that so much easier because you're not taking your plan and then making 15 different kind of adaptations. The plan that you're forming is asking yourself, what are the learners that I have in my room and how are they going to contribute to this space? And to be honest, everyone is better because of the contribution. If we have learners that you know benefit from, let's say doing an oral test versus a written test, If that is an option that exists for everybody in the class, if I say, hey, we're gonna do our spelling test, you can choose to write your words down or we can do it one-on-one or with an EA one-on-one and you can say them out loud. There is undoubtedly going to be students in that class that don't have an IEP, students that are quote unquote, you know, managing well in their typical classroom that go, oh, thank goodness. And they will succeed better with an oral exam not because it's an IEP requirement, but because we have different learning styles. And if that option exists because a student with dysgraphia is in that classroom, that's inclusion. Not only is the student with dysgraphia being included and accepted and honored in that space, but the entire class benefits from that option being available.
0: Oh,
1: 100%. I
0: mean, I think about my high school students, who I want them taking pictures of the board. I do not want them taking notes because one, they can't even read their notes by the time they're done. Mm -hmm. And if they're writing their notes, they're not able to physically listen to the teacher at the same time. So they're missing the core information and they won't do it Mm -hmm. because they don't want to be the only kid taking a picture. And I get so frustrated because I'm like, just let everybody take the dang picture. Yeah. And I think for early childhood education, inclusion is easier when we really do pay attention to that environment because Mm -hmm. it can be done through play. Yes. But even then it's very easy to miss core things. Like I think about, and I think you've done a post on this is I think about even the table Mm -hmm. and how people sit at the table. Can children sit on certain chairs? So in an early childhood setting, what are things that people can specifically zone in on Mm -hmm. to
1: assess their environment. So for, and this applies to every setting, but especially for early childhood, we need to get away from thinking about what something should look like at the end. And instead think about two things. One is what's my objective, right? We would call that like a pedagogical intent. What is my intention behind what I'm expecting or presenting or the questions I'm posing? The second is, what are the prerequisite skills needed to be successful here? So if you're talking about, let's say, you know, we have put play on the table and there's five chairs around the table and our expectation is children are going to come to the table and engage with play The first question is, what's my intention? Why am I presenting this material? Is it because I want to fill time? Is it because my kids need some kind of sensory um, exploration? Is it because we're going to be creating, you know, some kind of structure after? What is my intention? That intention is really going to show you the objective. And if I hone in on the objective, then I'm going to inherently be more inclusive because I'll open up all these doors for how I can provide that objective in a different way. So if my objective is that I want to have a sensory exploration, you know my maybe my kids are kind of up here and I need to bring them down. We want to have a sensory exploration. Then maybe I'm not just putting play-doh out. Maybe I'm also putting out like a water bin. Maybe I'm considering the fact that some of my children don't like that sticky feeling. Maybe we have sensory processing things we need to consider. Maybe instead of having a Play-Doh table, I have three tables of different sensory explorations. So that's number one, what's my objective? What's my intention? If you find it, you'll find hundreds of other ways to meet that objective through things that fill children in their learning and kind of regulation needs. The second thing is prerequisite skills. Educators often overlook prereg- prerequisite skills because we take them for granted. The skills that we need to sit at a table and do Play Doh are not just to play with Play Doh. We need to be able to sit in a chair, you know, in this assumption that we've got this table set up with Play Doh. We need to sit in a chair. We need to be able to take turns. We probably need to be able to manage our body close in proximity to other people. We need to have some communication about something that you want or don't want, or it's your turn, my turn. We need to have the fine motor and gross motor dexterity to actually manipulate that material. All of these things need to exist in order for that activity to be successful. And if we overlook them, then we're not inclusive because we can't support any child that doesn't have those. So if I know that I have a child that struggles with fine motor, then maybe giving this big lump of Play-Doh in the middle of a table isn't going to make that successful for them. If I have a child that, you know, doesn't manage well sitting still in the chair, then having an expectation that, oh, sit down while we're playing Play-Doh is already setting them up for failure. If I can look at the objective, I can provide more opportunities for engagement with that objective. And if I look at the prerequisite skill, I can see all the ways that I can support children through that. Mm -hmm. the waffle stool, maybe providing tools that they can use with the Play-Doh instead of just relying on their fine motor skills. If communication is maybe a struggle or we're learning communication, I can provide visuals, you know, for my turn or stop or whatever it might be. But we just assume as educators, well, all kids like to play with Play-Doh. So we put it down and we overlook kind of this inherent struggle we're creating for neurodiverse learners. I love those examples because in my head,
0: I'm starting to go like, oh gosh, okay, so do we just not put the Play-Doh out? And that's not the point. Mm-hmm. The point is to look at supporting all the students in the program with the objective in mind. And I think mm-hmm. that is absolutely incredible.
1: That's right. I had a, um in a class, in a three to five room, when I was supporting a young learner one-to-one, Anytime that painting was out, this child really would gravitate towards painting. They love to paint. The downside is that this child really did not like to be messy. And so originally when the educators would put out painting, they would put out, you know, kind of a community table of paints and they could get their own paper, sit down, do their art, put it on the drying rack. It was very independent. For this learner, that was not at all successful because kids are getting him messy. He's having to navigate sharing all of these. He ended up in dysregulation and upset at painting, which was really sad because that was like his favorite thing to do. When we looked at what the objective of putting that out was, and then we thought about the prerequisite skills needed to engage in that community painting table, we realized that we weren't at all supporting his prerequisite skills. He didn't yet have, he was non-speaking so and he was still learning his AAC didn't have communication to communicate with his uh, peers at the table. And the anxiety of someone getting him, you know, in the elbow with a paintbrush would deter him from engaging in that space. So when we set up painting, yes, they would still set up the community table, but they would also set up two art easels. So not only did this eliminate his requirement to be in close proximity to others and to share his materials, but it also... Allowed him to stand and to have a slanted upright presentation of his paper, which helped with a lot of other OT type skills we were working on. So we still got to engage with painting. It was maybe five seconds more of work (laughs) for the educator, but the result was we didn't have all of this behavior and upset come out simply because we overlooked these prerequisite skills. Yes, 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 a thousand times yes. And
0: again, the response was not to remove the paint. So I absolutely <laughs> love, right. It's about being solution focused mm-hmm. and the solution is not to remove it from the classroom because that's yeah. not fair to anybody and nobody's going to learn anything. That's
1: right. And by setting up too, we were able to have still peers close by, but in their own zone, you know, right. so we could still say like, look, look at his painting. Whoa, that looks so nice. Like, oh, look at your painting. And we could still have Collaboration and build community in that way. But we had kind of more of an isolated space that was felt safer for for that child.
0: Amazing. Love it. Now, taking the room, taking the environment on a bigger scale, we've talked about this, I'm sure, through our voice notes, is about how it's not about what the room looks like. So, I mean, sure, we all like to look at these pretty pictures. I know I've done it where I've saved or screenshot. These pictures of classrooms where you're like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. And I am very happy to say my classroom did look amazing, but it really was not what actually mattered at the end of the day, because if a child can't use it, Mm -hmm. then you pretty much have a museum. Yeah. So what would you say would be the key areas of focus when educators are setting up their classroom, especially now as we're starting to head into that new school year here in Mm -hmm. Canada? What would you say would be the key focus areas to be to, I guess, check in with ourselves and check
1: in with our environments? Mm-hmm. So basically, it comes down to function. What is the function that something is serving in your classroom? So if something looks nice, that's great. And that can be a function as well, right? That, you know, provides some kind of aesthetic purpose, but you have to ask yourself, what is the function of this? And am I, by contributing this function, am I taking away or am I taking away a experience or a regulatory moment for a child? Or am I providing or adding something that's going to cause struggle? And what I mean by that is a lot of times I see educators that have these beautiful baskets, you know, and everything's organized and they've got like a beautiful label on them. And it looks like you're saying, it's like, it's Pinterest worthy. Mm -hmm think, you look at that and you go, wow, as an adult, that looks so nice. But what is the function? What is the function of that basket? Yes, that looks nice for me as an adult. But if I think about a child that has, let's say ADHD, where there's a whole out of sight, out of mind kind of principle, that those materials being in that basket now are more difficult for that child to um, access not because it's difficult to get into the basket, but because they don't see them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They're not out and presented for that child. They don't really exist. It's like a barrier to engage with that material. And you're probably thinking, oh, but there's that beautiful label on it. Kids don't often read in our classrooms. And so I see a lot of labels that say blocks. <laughs> and it's like, that's great for us as educators to know when we're cleaning up at the end of the day, but that's where the blocks go. But the function of that doesn't serve a child that can't read. So my go-to recommendation is to honestly get down on the floor and to think about all of your materials through this lens of neurodiversity, which means is this accessible to me? Is it visually I can see what it is and I know how to use it? Is it overwhelming or overstimulating to me? Does it provide is the function aesthetic only? Because then it's probably providing a distraction or or too much sensory input. And I see this in Not all. I think a lot of classrooms are going more to a, you know, natural kind of light and bright wooden type aesthetic, which I love. But there are some that are very much the like primary colors, full of posters, all of this kind of presentation of materials that really is for aesthetics only as their function. So I think educators should get down on the floor and think, if I was a child, could I easily access this item? And what skills am I using to access that item? If you're reading, that's something you got to get rid of. Replace that with a picture, right? Absolutely. You're, you must have baskets. <laughs> put a picture on the front that is a picture of the real item inside, right? And not you know, not a Pinterest photo of what blocks should look like, but take a real snapshot with your phone of those blocks, set up and play, laminate that and put that on the front. But best case scenario is that material is just going to be open on a shelf. That's going to allow all children not only the ease of access, but the understanding of what exists on that shelf.
0: The type A in me just twitched. I hope you know that. I I can see it in (laughs)
1: face. Just just, like, oh my (laughs) goodness. It's a struggle for me too, because I like things to be organized and I like things to be, you know, I'm also out of sight, out of mind. And so I like that. I like to not know that those things exist, but it's difficult for children. I had a center that I did an observation at for their environment and they weren't engaging with any of the kitchen play. So she's saying, oh, maybe I'm just going to get rid of kitchen. It doesn't seem like the children are into it. But all the kitchen materials were in a cupboard, wooden cupboard, and inside that cupboard in baskets, which if you know, oh, kitchen materials are here and you open the cupboard and you see all these beautiful baskets, that looks great. But the kids don't know they're there. So my recommendation was not only get rid of the baskets, but take those doors off the cupboards and just have a few items, you know, pots and pretend food or whatever. Lo and behold, everyone's playing with the kitchen the next day. Amazing.
0: And and I totally, totally get it because when I blocks is my favorite thing. Like having an engaged blocks area has been something that I just love. Mm-hmm. And I would just have my blocks on the shelf purely because I could have more blocks on the shelf. Yeah, for sure. Right. And blocks was my most popular area. And when I really look deep into it, it makes perfect sense that it's because they had easy access and I didn't have this was the one year I did not have a single nut allergy in my class. So I used the Ferrero Rocher Christmas chocolate boxes. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because they're clear. Yeah. Washed them out and I used those as my loose parts. Right. And they stored all my loose parts on a shelf on the wall. And because they mm-hmm. were see-through and bath and body works, I don't know if you've ever seen this hack, but you can freeze the candle, pop the candle out. Oh, yes, yeah. And use the glass container. The yeah. And again, because it's see-through, the kids would gravitate towards them. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I'm thinking, yeah, my basket shelf probably could have done without the baskets. Yeah.
1: But you're also bringing up a good point about, you know, making this space inclusive. And that's using open-ended materials, blocks, loose parts. If there isn't a right way and a wrong way to use something, that's inherently more inclusive because you're allowing children to follow their own natural, you know, way of engagement and their own learning patterns with that material if you present something that has a kind of a an end point if i'm presenting you know like let's say just a puzzle and nothing against puzzles i think they're great but there's only really one way to engage with that material that we would consider appropriate everything else might be damaging <laughs> that's going to deter some children that maybe don't have the fine motor dexterity to complete that or the spatial awareness or the cognition of what that should look like if we provide Blocks or loose parts or art supplies that are open ended, all children can engage with that at different levels with different expectations for themselves.
0: So, so, so true. And you work on that collaboration where the children start to learn from each other Mm -hmm. so that those social skills will come into play naturally. How to build something will come into play naturally. So everybody will be developing, but at their own rate. Mm -hmm. That's right. Love it. So as always, always such a good conversation with you. Anything other than the classroom environment that educators should really be zoning in on when it comes to working with neurodiverse children?
1: Is it rude if I say themselves?
0: (laughs) Not at all. Self-reflection is huge for SECs.
1: Yes. And I feel like, and it's not, I mean, everyone should be doing professional development all the time. I do professional development constantly. As do Um, I. It's not like you get, oh, I'm done now. You know, you're never done. You're always learning. Things are always changing. But yeah, I think kind of educator self-reflection on what their understanding of neurodiversity is and where that understanding is coming from. We have this long social history of, of not necessarily accepting differences and not certainly not honoring them. And I think that even an educator that is up to date and current in their practice and really intentional with their practice, they have undoubtedly had experiences where they have heard or been a part of conversation that wasn't necessarily neurodiversity affirming. I think about, you know, myself, even back when I was a kid, this kind of social acceptance or the social regard of something like ADHD was like, that's that it either wasn't a real diagnosis, right? People either minimized the fact that it existed, or they um, considered it was, you know, bad parenting. So ADHD was regarded as either not a real thing, or it was an excuse for bad parenting, right? Those kids need more discipline. they're eating too much sugar, they're not sleeping well. And even though I know that that's not the case, Research has shown that's not the case. Brain mapping has shown that's not the case. We have come so far in our understanding of what ADHD really is and looks like. That doesn't mean that as a kid, I didn't overhear those conversations and that your initial reaction or perception of something reflects those, right? If a child is having, you know, behaviors, your first reaction might come from that background. You might think, oh, that kid, you know, his parents don't discipline him correctly right? And it really takes educator self-reflection to stop. And in my ADHD workshop, we go through this whole praise model, but to stop and really self-reflect before you respond to a behavior so that you're not reacting to it, to pause and say, what am I observing right now? How does it relate to what I know about, in this case, ADHD? What need has to be met for this child? Am I in a place right now myself emotionally Do I have capacity to meet that need? How will I prevent this from happening in the future? So, what skills need to be taught? And this whole practice makes you a more inclusive care provider. It makes you a stronger educator, but it is an intentional practice. It doesn't just happen because you did professional development one time and now you know that ADHD isn't about parenting. It is intentional, self reflective practice. So, beyond the environment, you know, beyond having a beautiful looking space and beyond, you know, having children contribute to and benefit from their environment, it's really all about the educators.
0: Yes, amen to that. 100%, because the educator sets the environment, Mm -hmm. both mentally and physically.
1: Yeah, and I find that what we, the way that we engage with people, and I preach this a lot too, the way we talk about people or two people the way we engage with them communicates not only our actual words but it communicates what we think or believe of them and for children they internalize that and especially in a group setting the other children model that so if i am being impatient or frustrated with a certain child's behaviors even if i'm saying the right things my body language my tone of voice all of that is communicating something different to That child who's internalizing, oh, you know, Miss Monica's mad at me. It doesn't feel like she gets mad at the other children. I must be a bad kid. They internalize that. And the other children are learning how to respond to that behavior. So they're either going to model my compassion and understanding and support, or they're going to model my frustration and, you know, kind of dissociation. You can't have an inclusive environment where you're teaching children to be kind and inclusive to other people if what you're modeling or inadvertently saying is that there's no room for this here.
0: Oh my gosh. So much truth
1: to that. It's hard. It's not, it's not easy, but it's like I said, constant intentional practice.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, that goes all the way through life. I mean, I'll never forget when I was teaching preschool in a high school and a high school teacher walked in, pointed at one of the high school kids and said, that's a bad kid. And I just, I couldn't believe the words left another educator's mouth. Mm -hmm. And I just looked at her and said, actually, he's one of the best students in this class. And this kid knew he wasn't a bad kid. Mm -hmm. He behaved poorly when he was around this educator because why should he care what she thinks about him? Yeah. Or she
1: already has that belief. So why work hard to have, you know, like people will, people will see what they want to see. And so if you, and this is part of that communication piece, if I'm communicating to another educator that a certain child is, you know, like I said, bad, quote unquote, which I would never, but if if I'm communicating that to another educator, then when that educator engages with that child, that's what they're looking for. They don't know that's what they're looking for. So that child could have 10 amazing behaviors. They could be kind and caring and compassionate and thoughtful and silly and they won't see those, but they might see the one time that there's maybe a dysregulated moment and they'll go, oh yeah, they were right. That's a bad kid. Just So it's so in
0: my heart. Yes. It is so, so important. And it, again, like you said, it starts with us. 100%. Yeah. 100, 100%. Now let's talk about your workshops because I have attended your workshops. They are amazing. Thank Where you. can people connect with you? Find out about your workshops Um, Mm -hmm. what's the easiest way for them to get access? So
1: the easiest way honestly would be to Instagram message me. I like to say, email me, but I think I have 5,000 unread emails. So (laughs) it takes me a long time to type a in you again, your eyes like twitching. Um, (laughs) I'm like, oh my gosh, but no, it's true. Like it's, uh, it's not an exaggeration. Um, So yes, the best way would be to Instagram message me. Um, because I, for whatever reason, my brain is like Instagram dopamine respond to that. Yes. That would be the best way. I have educators that have requested specific workshops for their whatever need they feel that their space is lacking. Sometimes that exists in a, what I say, like my course gallery. Like I have an ADHD workshop, functions of behavior, sensory processing, transition to kindergartens. A lot of time, what people are looking for, I've already, I already have a course for you. But if I don't, then I also create... Um, what I call an individualized lesson based on specifically whatever your group is struggling with. And we can really target that. Of course, they're all related to neurodiversity and supporting children in that capacity, but they are beneficial for all educators. Even if you at the time don't have a neurodiverse child in your space that you know of. That you know of. That's right. They're there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so
0: now, what is your Instagram so that people can DM you? Yeah. So it's Mrs. Monica Madison. Easy. just my name. Perfect. And we'll make sure that that's in our show notes. And thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Wow. And I have one question that I'm starting to ask everybody at the end of the show. And that is what is
1: your favorite education book? Oh my gosh. I have to pick one. You know what? Let me bring it up. I have one that I have. I actually have, actually I have four. <laughs> can, can I say four? Is that yes, okay? Go ahead and say um, four. Okay. Let me grab them so that I'm quoting the authors correctly because it's actually inherently, they're not for educators. Okay. Four books that I would recommend to all educators and honestly, to parents too, anyone that's engaging with children and want to be intentional in their practice. The first one is The Whole Brain Child yes, um, by um, Sigel and, and Bryson, I believe. The second is called Free to Learn, and this is by Peter Gray. It really takes evidence of anthropology, psychology, kind of human history to show how free play is where children learn to solve problems, communicate, and become emotionally resilient. So free to learn, 100%. The third is How to Listen with Intention. This is by Patrick King. And it's really just about active listening, reflective listening, really talks about listening to understand versus listening just to respond. So that one. And then the last is Brain Body Parenting. This is by uh, Mona Delahook, I think is how you pronounce her last name. But Brain Body Parenting is really a book that talks about this bottom-up approach for behavior whereas typically people will think about a top-down approach right they think about this thinking brain as the be-all end-all and this brain body parenting talks about the essentials of our nervous system and how that nervous system contributed contributes to feelings and emotions and how feelings and emotions contribute to thinking versus how thinking is this top-down approach for all of those things so those are my four. If I'm allowed to say four,
0: <laughs> you are more than welcome to say for it. That is amazing. Thank you. Thank you for sharing those with us. And I will talk to you soon. No problem. Thanks.